0: Catherine D'Agostino is the founder and sensei of Self Storage Ninjas. After selling a previous business, Catherine jumped into the storage business building three facilities from the ground up in three years. She also runs a feasibility analysis firm focused on delivering unbiased reports to self-storage investors that results in facilities with high occupancy and the highest possible returns. In this episode, we talk to Catherine about how she got into the self-storage business, How to pick a self-storage market to invest in, her unique plan to scale by building facilities from the ground up, and why she thinks boat and RV storage is a good business. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sunbelt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you.
1: All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom.
0: Well, Catherine D'Agostino, welcome to the road to family freedom.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So, you know, before we get into the dig into the world of feasibility studies and self storage, how did you find yourself in the self storage business?
1: Ah, uh, well, um, so after I got my MBA, I um, opened a separate company in a different industry, and I grew it to about 31 employees. And it was about seven years that I had that company. As I looked to diversify, I wanted another business, but I knew I couldn't have, I absolutely could not deal with one more employee. So that's a pretty short list of businesses that aren't employee heavy. And so that's how I found storage. And um, I fell so in love with the industry. I eventually sold that company and um, just went into business for myself. I love, I'm such a storage nerd. I know Stacy Rossetti has trademarked the storage nerd thing, but I'm right there with her. <laughs> has,
0: she tra- has she trademarked it? So when I say, so when I talk to myself about being a storage nerd, do I owe her some kickbacks?
1: Probably. You might want to send her a check.
0: Okay. All right. I'll talk to her about that. So <laughs> uh, maybe I'll, if, every time I say it, I'll have to say trademark Stacey Rossetti. That's right. <laughs> So talk to us about that first facility, that first facility. What were- Well,
1: it took us a long, long time. First, we um, looked at acquiring existing facilities and it, either in, we just look, I live in Nebraska. So we're looking in like Missouri, Kansas City, Iowa, and so many of the deals that we looked at didn't have a lot of upside after the debt service. So we eventually decided, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to pursue that anymore. We're going to do ground up construction. So then we started researching, like, where are we going to buy land and how do we make that decision? And that's how I found um, my first feasibility consultant. And I actually had reverse studies done, which I don't know if you're familiar with those, but that's when the consultant finds for you, like the area to go look for land and you go that the market is undersupplied for self-storage and all you have to do is go find land in whatever that two mile radius or five mile radius, 10 mile radius, whatever it is. So I got those reports and I was like, oh, this is great. This solved all my problems. Now I know exactly where to look, you know, with my background, um, with my MBA and my background in new product development. I was like, ah, I could do this and I could do it even better. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so um, while well, we worked on um, our first facility we were going to build in, a, we focus on like more tertiary markets. So we were going to build in Seward, Nebraska, lovely Seward, Nebraska. There's a university there. There's a lot of business there. It's, it's a growing, it's a great town. However, as we went through the process, our land was uh, um, put under contract by another developer. And then When that developer wasn't able to get the zoning they needed, and we asked for an extension on our purchase agreement, um, the original seller said, nope, I'm tired of messing with this. It's taken too long. It's been almost a year. I'm going to sell it to somebody else. Although we um, sued him and we settled and we technically won, you know, you never really win. So we just, uh, that set us back a year for one of the facilities I'm building now, that facility also needed zoning. That was 11 months with the planning commission and city council. So that's a hot tip. I would give everyone out there if you really want to speed up the process, <laughs> get the zoning first. Yeah, And then uh, just there's a lot of other things that happened with that. I feel like everything is a learning process, but Not always the, um, I'm tired of learning processes. I I just, now that I, the more you learn, the less learning processes you'll have to have. But I eventually found that that contractor that I had engaged for that facility was fully intending to pad all of the subcontractors' bills and keep the difference, even though our contract forbid him from doing that. And so then I re-had to have that whole whole project rebid and we are building that facility with another contractor, but now it's going to cost $400,000 more because the contractor didn't know what he was doing. So on one hand, it's a super huge plus because the, all those buildings would have just slid down the Hill. There wouldn't have been any retaining walls. It would have been a huge problem. Mm-hmm. But now I also know like exactly what type of engineering reports to get exactly um, what type of surveys to get. And so I feel like now that I'm on to my third facility, it's, you can't believe how fast it's going because it had the zoning. We're getting the reports quickly. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. It's, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. the, The law of the first deal is that you, you know, you can do all the learning you want from books and podcasts and seminars and, uh, educators Uh gurus and things like that. But it's not until you, you really, you know, the rubber meets the road and you start doing a deal that you learn what you don't know. Absolutely. Uh, And then, yeah. and the nice thing about it is the more, the more times you do it, the less scary it gets. And you're like, okay, yeah, I've been through, I've been through this before. It's not the, you know, Uh, Oh, something came back with the inspection, you know, in the first deal, it's like, Oh my God, what does that mean? (laughs) And the third time it's like, okay, what's the deal?
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, and the great thing about self storage is that there's so much data to support your projections and the facility that you feel like, you know, once you just finally get the facility built, you know, you know, the market is going to be there. You've done all of that research and there's all that, those numbers to back it up. So yeah, Yeah. definitely sticking through it.
0: Yeah. So let's get some details on that first facility. How, what, what's the size of it? What acreage units?
1: Yeah. So the first facility is about 27,000 square feet. So pretty small by most people's standards. And um, we're doing about 80 open parking boat and RV units. And it's a a long skinny parcel on a highway. It's about six and a half acres. And then our second facility is in Grand Island, Nebraska. And it's almost exactly the same size also on a highway. Um, And it will uh, have about 60 boat and RV spots. And then the third one is in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. And that facility we're building in two phases. So it will, the first phase is only 12,000 square feet and the second phase is only 12,000 square feet. So right now I'm focused on markets, smaller markets where after we get these facilities built, the larger plan is to contact the self-storage owners in the area and hopefully acquire their facilities and build our portfolio that way.
0: Gotcha. So rather than trying to buy an existing facility the first time for your first deal, you're just going in, you're just building in the area. Now you're in the area Mm -hmm. and now you can start scaling by just dragging in the existing facilities.
1: Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Or
1: instead of like, you know, a lot of my clients, um, they'll build in a larger market, whether it's Fort Worth or Orlando or whatever, but then they're building a hundred thousand square feet. Yeah. So yeah. we'll acquire a hundred thousand square feet, but it's going to take you know like four facilities, six facilities to get that big.
0: Gotcha. So just gotcha.
1: a different different model.
0: Yeah. Um, what um, would you mind me asking? What the all in is going to be on that first facility?
1: The first facility is about one point six million. The second facility is about one point four. And the third, the first phase will only be about 900000
0: And are you bootstrapping all of this off of the sale of your previous business, or are you bringing in investors?
1: The first facility I did by myself. The second facility I brought in investors. And um, I'm actually speaking about that this year at World Expo. And then the third facility I'm doing with a partner who's one of my investors in the Grand Island project. Gotcha. And so that one is working out really well because we're subdividing the 10 acres we've bought and we will actually sell it for more than we paid for it. And that will pay for the down payment. So we'll actually be able to build that facility without really using any of our own money in the end.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, So on that first facility, what type of financing did you use?
1: I did um, SBA loans on both of those first two facilities. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll be working with Mandy on the third one. We'll see what she comes up with. Um, but I did 10% down on the first and 15% down on the second.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And what drew you what drew you to those markets? I mean, you said you're sort of targeting tertiary markets. Was there anything else that kind of mm-hmm. stood out to you about those markets?
1: So I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. And um, I want to be able to visit my facilities easily and quickly, these first facilities. And then my partner lives in Pennsylvania that I'm doing the third facility with. So another thing that I really look for is growing markets. So the first facility in Ashland, that market is the population growth is almost 14% over the last three years. So it's the fastest growing market in Nebraska.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's between Lincoln and Omaha, two biggest cities. And it's also one of the wealthiest areas. So it's underserved for self-storage. But yeah, I think that uh, the big key everyone should look for is you really want to look for a growing market that's undersupplied. Yeah. And that's going to be the least risky proposition for you.
0: Gotcha. We'll dig, we'll dig more into that uh here in a minute. Um, <laughs> So it, it's a drivable, it's drivable. The first two facilities are drivable for you, but they're tertiary markets that are growing. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. On that first facility, with the SBA loan, they, I assume they gave you all of the money for the construction costs and everything, correct? Mm-hmm. And yep. Then-
1: so with both the SBA loans, they will include your... Loan payments during construction as well as until you're at break-even and you can pay those. And then they'll they'll include your operating expenses until you can pay those. So you ask for all of that as your total loan. So like our our total loans would probably be about $200,000 more than I told you. But if you don't use that, then of course, it just comes off from the the principal. You never draw on it.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So they they're giving yeah. you they're basically allowing you to they're basically giving you the money to pay the loan for the period that you're leasing up to st- stability or to to right uh, to break even right. the point.
1: Yeah, and um, did you know this that right now if it was as part of the Second CARES Act. If you get an SBA loan after February 2nd and you're able to complete the entire deal, whether it's acquisition or expansion or construction by the end of September, then the SBA will waive your origination fees and pay the first three months up to $9,000 a month of principal and interest. So up to $27,000. And so um, the two caveats are until the money runs out. So that might be before September 30th. And that, what was the other one I was going to say? So until the money runs out and oh, they might extend it back to six months.
0: Gotcha. That's still up in the air. Gotcha. So look up the second, look up the details on the second cares act. And I'll put the, I'll see if I yeah. can get a link a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Also, uh, I forgot to mention earlier when you were talking about zoning, We interviewed Mm -hmm. a man by the name of Scott Crone, um, who you may or may not know, who specializes in converting old buildings to storage. We interviewed him back on episode 77, and Scott has some great tips on dealing with the zoning departments.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I have a, a client too, that he used to do entitlements for the REITs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wish that I had uh, known him before I embarked on that process. <laughs>
0: yeah. it, it can be, it, it can be very political. It can be very, you know,
1: yeah,
0: you know, you gotta be yeah, worried. it
1: is shocking how political it is.
0: Yeah. The other tip yeah. that I heard from somebody, and I think it was on uh, one of the, um, the clubhouse storage chats where oh, some yeah? guy, where some guy talked about, I forgot what he called it he called it the, Hey y'all, where you go into the city planning department or the zoning department and you go, Hey y'all, I I'm, I'm new at this. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. I have got an idea for, here's what I want to do. And, and basically get them to basically uh-huh. talk you through the process that often you would probably have to go and hire uh, an architect or a, you know, I'm not sure who in the process would do this, um, that uh-huh. would be doing it, you know, at several hundred dollars an hour for you. And when they show up at the door, you know, a lot of times the, the zoning department's going to be like, you know, oh, what do you want? You know. Yeah. Whereas you know, if you start this kind of slow process of asking them how you do it, now they get kind of mm-hmm. invested in you, and and they get invested in your success, and and now maybe you'll have a better chance of them, you know, approving. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a seminar from last year's World Expert Expo that a company called Design House did, and they're actually, uh, I believe, primarily architects, but they did a seminar on zoning. I think you can buy it for like 49 bucks. I got it for free since I was a speaker. But um you uh, they go through in that I wish I had known this when I started it was like I'm not joking like a thousand steps to getting your zoning project through. Wow. And one of them was exactly what you were talking about. You know, you go to those first meetings and you don't give any details and you're just like I am just a novice. I'm a friendly person can you just tell me what you want? Yep. You know, and don't commit to anything. Just be open to their ideas. (laughs) Yep. Yep.
0: All right. So So, I'll try and look that up. Presentation from design house, uh, from the self-storage world expo. I'll try and put that in the show notes as well. So let's talk about feasibility studies. Let's do (laughs) (laughs) exciting world of feasibility studies. Now, It's often, you know, I probably once a week on some self-storage forum, I will Uh see somebody come across and go, hey, I've got this eight acres of land and I'm thinking about putting storage on it. What do I need need to know? And, Uh you know, or or they'll ask something like, Mm -hmm. you know, how much does it cost to to build these or something like that? Uh, And I always come in, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> congratulations. If you own the land, if you don't own the uh-huh. land, hold up. I said, you know, and you ask, have you done a feasibility study? A what? Uh-huh. And, right. and it's like, okay, just no, this is those, the days of build it, Drop a self storage facility down in the middle of some area, and that they're going to come are over. They're long over, right. um, and and I'm totally fine with trying to steer people away from making this mistake because I I, th- I think a better self storage operators do the better we all are. Um, right. And uh, uh, and I and you ask them, have you done a feasibility study? And they go, what? And you go, and then they start going, well, God, that's how much, you know. And mm-hmm. you go, well, okay, so you're going to, you're going to spend a couple million dollars to try and build this, but you know, you're not going to spend 25 to, you know, I don't know, 25 to 5,000 for a desktop study or, or whatever a, a site visit costs. I said, first of uh-huh. all, any bank you go to is going to ask, they're going to say, what's where your feasibility study. Um, right. So you're going to have to do it eventually anyway. Um, but. Uh, any thoughts yeah. on that? any thoughts on that? I'm sorry, I kind of rambled there. Yeah,
1: absolutely. yeah, i I stopped um, participating in a lot of the Facebook forums because it does get frustrating <laughs> sometimes. but you, yeah, I, I mean, of course, I totally agree. And the more experienced a developer is, the quicker they are to order a feasibility study. So a feasibility study is not only going to identify all the potential risks in the market it's probably going to uncover several things that you don't know. And that's the, I would say that's the most common thing that I hear from every single client I do a study for is I didn't know that. So, you know, you might know a whole lot about one part of storage or one part of your market or one part of your planned site. But like you said, you know, if you're going to be risking Two to five million dollars. Don't you want to do your due diligence and make sure that you're building the type of storage that the market wants and will be the most profitable? We're not building it at all. <laughs> I mean, sometimes isn't that that's what everyone says, right? The deal you walked away from can be the best deal.
0: Yeah, we we I went through that exact thing less than a couple of weeks ago. We were my partner and I were under contract for a, a, uh, an MTK Mart, great location. Uh-huh. It was in great shape. Plan was to build it in phases and try and have some drive through storage, climate controlled. There was demand for it in the market, you know, uh-huh. but it came back and it was just kind of the feasibility. We had a feasibility study, bit done, and the feasibility study, but came uh-huh. back and was kind of like, yeah, but me, you know, it wasn't uh-huh. like, the town and the problem was the town, the, the population was declining in the town.
1: Oh, uh, right.
0: And you know, yeah, the
1: only way that works is if the, if it, the market is so dramatically undersupplied that yeah. by the time the population hits, yeah, whatever it's rock bottom could be.
0: Yeah. And yeah. we just like, you know, there's, there's gotta be a better opportunities out there. And right. Uh, and so we, you know,
1: or sometimes you see in smaller markets, if it's a one industry town and that one industry is declining, you know, that is, that's a risky proposition as well.
0: Yep. So, so tobacco, that was, that was the one industry in this town. And
1: <laughs> Uh, sure. Yep. You see that. Or you see like railroads or something like yep. that too. Yep. 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 Yeah. So, and I, I would say one thing to be thinking about too is there might be times when you don't need a feasibility study, like if you do live in a very small town and there is no self-storage and you're just going to be building 5,000 square feet in the middle of town, that's pretty low risk. Yeah. But or if you're a REIT or if you're 10 federal and you have 100 facilities and you have in-house analysts, don't need a feasibility study, yeah. but gotcha. for the rest of the world.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sometimes a beer and a napkin just isn't going to cut it.
0: Gotcha. <laughs> so, you you talked about a little bit about at the beginning you talked about risk and storage. Talk to me about what you mean mean by that.
1: So, there's the great thing about self-storage is that there's so much data available about how much supply a market can bear. Um, And you can look not only just at that market, you can look at similar markets in that region. You can look at how the overall state is performing and compare those numbers to the national averages. And then there's so much data available through the self-storage demand study that comes out every three years um, about what type of storage consumers want, whether it's by what region of the country they're in. What type of urban setting they're in, you know, if they're rural, suburban or urban um, and what generation they're in, you know, if they're millennial, Gen Z, whatever. And it, I mean, I think that's one thing I've heard from uh, self-storage developers is they maybe they didn't know that their customer base um, would be primarily millennials. And maybe they thought millennials, you know, you hear this myth about millennials all the time that they don't have stuff and they don't want stuff. Well, that's not true. And they are the fastest growing group of self-storage consumers. And yep. of course they want stuff. Maybe they just don't always have money. First.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> But they're getting there. They are so. getting there.
0: Well, and they're also, I think, leading the charge with the technological revolution that's happening in storage. You know, right. they, they're the ones that yeah. want, they want touchless entry. They want, you know, key. they want no key systems, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to have mm-hmm. to go and, you know, talk to a manager and, you know, get a contract and fill out a form that's got carbon copy, mm-hmm. you know, press hard to, they want to be able to do it on mm-hmm. their phone. Um, right. And, and, and do it within, you know, you know, at least be ready to, to move in within the next two hours and not, and right. the little, the little, the less interaction they have with a, a human being, the better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do feel like that used to be an easy competitive advantage that new facilities could have or that you could go and do value add to a facility. But now with the pandemic, it's kind of made the industry catch up to the yeah. groundbreakers. So yeah,
0: it's not now like
1: I think it's just like a baseline.
0: Talk to us about somebody, you know, who's doing an initial competitive analysis on their own before, you know, before we get Mm -hmm. down, you know, before we bring in a pro like yourself or um, some of the other feasibility study companies, which I won't won't mention my name out of respect for our current guest. (laughs) Uh, Well,
1: yeah. So there's a lot of work you can do on your own to make sure you're comfortable doing a feasibility study and, and paying the money for it. So you can call all of the local competitors And, you know, just pretend like you're a customer and see, you can go down there to chat with them. They're bored if they're full time and they'll talk to you all day. You can talk to them about what unit sizes are the most popular, how many of each size they have available, what their business has been like over the last year. Or um, what's really great is if, if there is a facility that's in lease up in your area and you go talk to them. And, and uh, a lot of times they'll just tell you, you know, we opened six months ago and we're at 70% occupancy. You're like, Oh, what? I mean, the average in the industry right now is three to four years. So if if they have leased up that quickly, that's a sign of unmet demand. So you can learn a lot from just talking to those facilities. And another thing you can do if um, the facility is outside of your trade area, you know, if they're like, five miles away or seven miles away and your trade area is three miles, you could um, just be out and out honest and say, I want to build storage. Can I take you out to lunch? Like no one ever does that. And self storage owners are super friendly and they'll just go tell you everything about what it's like to do business in Lincoln, Nebraska or wherever. I think it's important to join your local state association and go to those meetings Tracty Building Systems, they have those free seminars, both virtual seminars um, that you can attend, and then they have in-person full-day seminars that you can attend. Um, You can pay by the hour to use Radius Plus. It's $20 an hour and do some initial research yourself that way. I will do people's first preliminary report free, which I just use Radius for. And then I'll do successive reports for 75 bucks just to see if it's worth doing a feasibility study in that area. Mm -hmm. So the difference between doing that on your own and then having me do it is you get my opinion. (laughs) Um, But there's I know that um, there's another feasibility consultant that does those that you can pay for those preliminary reports, too. So, yeah, there's a lot that you should do just maybe even to know if it's worth looking for land in that area. Right. But yeah. Um, once you, if you do find a hot parcel,
0: yeah, well, let's talk at a high level, kind of like the beginning stages of, you know, and I, I, and I can sort of walk you through kind of how we look, how I look for potential markets, potential facilities, but you know, what's the first thing you're looking at?
1: Well, when you're looking at a, a potential market, I would first think about how you're going to run the facility. If this is your first facility. Are you going to use Property Manager? Then you can expand your search farther. Are you going to work with a general contractor? And are you comfortable managing that process from far away? Probably not on your first facility. You're probably going to want to go see it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, I would think about in terms of like how far out you're going to go, how you're going to run the facility and how you're going to build the facility and what that process will be like. And also if you do live close, then you're just more familiar with the market and more familiar with what's going on. You know, like um, you mentioned with the, with the tobacco industry, like there's, there's still places that were tobacco heavy that are growing. And if you live close to one, then you'd be more comfortable knowing like, just because tobacco's not going good this market could still be good. Yeah. So those are the first things I would think
0: through. Yeah. So then I
1: would think through budget. <laughs> because the you know the larger your market the more expensive it is going to be to purchase the land and develop your facility. So it, and you know that doesn't mean you should rule it out if it's a big market that's expensive to get into you're just going to have to think about if you don't have the equity yourself, how are you going to raise that equity? And um, what are you going to do to fund your facility?
0: Gotcha. Okay. So uh, you, you typically, you typically start with management. How am I going to manage this facility? Is this going to be something that, that I'm going to hire, uh, hire an onsite manager to run? Um, Is it something that I'm going to try and run virtually? Is it something I'm going to hire, you know, a third party self-storage manager to take care of, which I will point out people need to understand that most self-storage third-party management companies are only going to go for a certain size facility. Right. You got to really, yeah. Cause it, it, it does not worth their time. um, Right. Yeah. They're looking at like
1: primary markets with 50,000 square feet or more.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so if you're just starting out and you're expecting you're going to buy a 25,000 square foot facility, that's, that's five hours away by plane. Um, you're expecting to hire Tron Jordheim from store here to run it for you. That's going to be a tough conversation to convince him to do, you know, uh, you it's not a hundred percent. You will sometimes find some self storage operators who are willing to take on those smaller facilities, but they're also usually going to want profit sharing. They're going to want a, they're sure. going to They part of the deal. Yeah. All right. So next you're looking at the market health, you know, just like, is it a growing market? You know, is it a one company town or one industry town? Um, you know, and what's, what's the future of that industry look like? And then third, you're looking what are at the?
1: I tell you, you'd also look at like, what are the attitudes towards self-storage in that industry, in that market? Yeah. Because, you know, if the municipality is feels like there's too much self-storage already and they're trying to, like, shut down any future development, is yeah. that a battle you want to take on?
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also even if you don't plan to build, I would say it's mm-hmm. smart to call them and find out what their plan is for storage. And if they say they have no plan, like, ah, we don't care. That's a bit of a red mm-hmm. flag as well, because then it sure. just means that, you know. Anybody see
1: Texas, what's that? <laughs> I said, see the state of Texas, <laughs> see, yeah, see
0: the state of Texas or see, you know, parts of uh, outside Boise, Idaho, you know, uh, where they're just uh-huh. like, ah, sure. You got the, you want, you own the land, build whatever you want. We don't care. And the next thing, you uh-huh. know, you know, six months after you've built your little 25,000 square foot class B facility, public storage comes in and mm. builds 120,000 across the street. So it's good to know what the what the attitude for storage is in the market whether you're building or buying a, a new faci- an existing facility so right and then last is and last is just budget whether or not you know are you going to bootstrap this and and you know do an Sba loan try and put 10 percent down how much can you put down uh, are you mm-hmm. going to you know are you somebody who's comfortable asking for uh you know pitching your friends and family on private equity and things like that and bringing in investors um all right So it's a good start. You are doing both indoor storage and boat and RV storage, correct?
1: Mm -hmm, Yeah. And so with boat and RV storage, which I'm super passionate about, and I really do think it's where it's at for a lot of um, oversupplied markets or people who wanted to to get into self storage that can't find a place to build self storage close to them because it's oversaturated. A lot of times boat and RV isn't. The hard thing is, is that there's not as much data available and also it's a different customer. So you're looking at different demand drivers than you are for self-storage. So whereas a self-storage customer is storing based on a need that is associated with mobility, whether it's moving or divorce or death, whatever, that's a need. But an RV consumers are storing based on pleasure they're storing based on something fun that they do and the average rv owner only drives their rv 14 days a year and depending on the state the average boat owner only goes boating between six and nine days a year so
0: wow
1: i know i know
0: wow I
1: know that
0: but is so the that's demand. Even, the that's demand. It. So hold on a second. I want to, I want to, I want to pass this because I because <laughs> I like I was blown away when I heard, you know, the average. I think I heard the stat that the average self-storage uh, customer expects to use their the residential expects to use it oh. six months. And the average uh-huh. person does it for over 24 months. Uh-huh. That what you just gave, told me that is a bigger, that's a bigger shocker than, than <laughs> that. That's huge. Wow. That's crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, um, until the pandemic, you know, boat and RV sales in tw- in 2019, they were dipping and they were kind of preparing for like millennials aren't interested. Our industry is slowing. What are we going to do? So, you know, they've never been happier for a global pandemic, the boat and RV industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: No, we can, um, we can't try, of- because we can't go outside the country and have fun.
1: <laughs> We're going to have fun here. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyways, the demand drivers you're looking at are different. So you're not only looking at how many registered boat owners are in your area and how many registered RVs are in your area. Um, you're not going to be able to find data on expired res- registrations so that will make your numbers more conservative which is good but you're also going to want to look at like the presence of community associations in your area homeowners associations you're going to want to look at the municipalities um, parking regulations and how they allow people to park either at their home or on the street um, you're going to want to look at tourism in your area you know like if you're close to a lake or a destination and then you're going to just overall look at at other structural changes in, in your market, whether it's like um, consumer behavior or the presence of a lot of boat and RV dealers, things like that, that are just very specific to your market. So there's still data there, but it's completely different than the type of data you're looking at for yeah. self-storage.
0: So, you know, you're typically with storage, you know, the the sort of industry, benchmark. And this is very like, this is just a rule of thumb people. Uh, you know, you're <laughs> typically looking for, you know, a median household income above $45,000 a year with boat and RV. Are you looking for, you're looking for a higher median? Income, yeah. Correct?
1: So the average, the average RV owner income is 62,000 and the average boat owner income is 60,000, mm. but that is going to vary widely because there are so many different types of boats in RVs, right? Like you might have an aluminum outboard boat or you could have essentially a yacht. (laughs) So so the type of storage you build in your market, you know, there's the fully enclosed drive through with the electricity and wash bay and um, you know, all the bells and whistles. And then there's the, essentially the field with a fence, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, maybe gravel.
0: Yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the first self storage associations I went to had a little, you know, it was a nice little breakfast buffet. You know, we had free breakfast, Mm -hmm. you know, go and I'm in line. Uh, and I'm talking to this guy who's probably, he's, he's probably 80 years old Mm -hmm. and, uh, really friendly as most storage people are. And I strike up a conversation with him and, and he goes, you know, I rent dirt. That's what I do. And it's the best business I've ever been in in my entire life. I've got 20 acres out on, uh, you know, such and such side of town. And we, you know, we just rent, we rent dirt. That's all we do. And I talked with him a little bit and he said, you know, pretty much all they did is if somebody stopped paying, they just turned their gate access off. You know, that's all you do. You just make it so they can't get through the gate. And he said, in general, he's like, you know, eventually you just came and told him like the, he rarely auctioned things, you know, he mainly just yeah. went to people and said, listen, come get your thing, come get it off my lot. Mm-hmm. Cause he didn't want to deal with having to, you know, uh, do the auction and all that. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I would say that you, you gotta be careful, you know, you're going to want to find out what kind of, you know, customer you're going to be dealing with. If you're going to be building boat and RV in an area, cause you may, it may be an area mm-hmm. where they expect a dump station and you know and a wash station and things like that
1: yeah yeah and for more expensive markets you know the only way to make that pencil is if you can build a premium boat and rv facility gotcha otherwise a lot of times you can't make it work with the land cost gotcha but um one thing just to keep in mind with like that guy who was just renting dirt Is it's not as easy to auction those boats and RVs, right? Because they have a title. And so um, the Self Storage Association uh, has a number of articles about this. Um, You need to, what I would recommend doing is just working with a local tow company because those towing companies are already set up for dealing with people who abandon their vehicles and they, they know the process. So it's better just to have a towing company just tow it and be like, you deal with it now than to try and, and auction it yourself.
0: So, you mentioned uh, doing research on the RV and boat registrations in an area. Do you have some tips on where to find that information and how to do that research?
1: Well, I pay for a database, you know, I pay for um, because I'm doing them all the time. Yep. Uh, you know, you're probably the average person isn't going to want to pay two to four thousand dollars for an annual subscription for that information. So gotcha. I would say you can get some of that information from that. It's usually the the game and wildlife department or game and parks. It's called different things in different states. Gotcha. Um, they're tracking boats generally. And then depending on the Department of Transportation in your area, they are handling registrations and whether or not they publish that RV data. Like there's a lot of places in California that publish that data that you could get it for free, but then there's other states that don't publish it at all.
0: Yeah. Gotcha.
1: And then you're just going to need to look at like national, national consumption and apply it to your area.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so, with your three facilities, you mentioned that you've got boat and RV storage on there. Is do you you also still have under you have under roof storage as well? Correct.
1: Oh yes, yeah. yeah, just regular self storage, and then we just have open parking, boat, and RV. Yeah, but yeah, one of my goals is absolutely to build like canopy and enclosed boat and RV in larger markets,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I you can just see so many places where that's undersupplied. And a lot of people have the attitude, like you can build it as far away as you want from town and people will still come. And that's not going to be true forever. Yeah. Like it's only true right now because there's not enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But
1: just like with self-storage, people either want their boat or RV close to their house or close to where they're going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. People aren't going to, it's, yeah, it's, it's a customer service based business and it's retail. And they're not going yeah. to want to, you know, they're going, not going to want to go right. far outside of of their normal retail corridor that they operate in. So, right. one, you know, it's interesting, you know, one of the major value add opportunities that most self-storage investors have talked about over the last, you know, five years or so is you look for facilities that have that have under roof storage, but then they have RV and boat parking. And oh so, yes and, and then so they just the
1: expand is, more self storage. Yeah, so
0: the idea is to get rid of that boat and RV because you know there's uh that's there's not as much money in that. There's more money in under roof storage. And it's interesting to me to see whether or not that's going to become you know whether that value add opportunity is kind of kind of go away because a boat and RV demand is going to rise so high that people are going to want they're still going to want that mm-hmm. space.
1: Um, All right. Well, yeah. So generally, self storage is always going to produce a higher return per square foot than boat and RV because the average boat and RV unit is 350 square feet. However, and this is where it can be really tough as a feasibility consultant, there are so many markets where there's certainly a demand for enclosed boat and RV or canopy boat and RV, but there's no comparables, right? So you're going out like. 10 miles 20 miles 30 miles looking for comparables and then you get to those comparables and there are independent facilities that have been full for three years they haven't raised their prices for three years maybe they haven't raised their prices for six years and you're trying to use that as the comparable so of course when you do a feasibility study that analyst is always going to have to look at what is not what could be Mm -hmm. but You know, when you're running your scenarios, your best case, worst case, most likely case, look at the type of facilities that are doing what you want to do and are offering um, the same type of boat and RV storage you want to offer. Like for example, I saw this facility right outside of Indianapolis. It has, I think, about 60 fully enclosed boat and RV units, and they were renting those. um, The smallest one. 30 feet, $900 a month, the largest, $1,200 a month. Fully leased, two-year wait list. You would not expect that, like right outside Indiana, in no. the, Indianapolis. And so I have a client who just is developing his facility in Fort Worth, his boat and RV facility. And he's previously done car condos. So he has had somebody call him. He has an even. He's just now closing on the land, getting, you know, getting all of his uh, plans done and everything. And, and uh, he got a call from somebody through his, the car condos that says, you know, I need a place to stay, to sol- stay, to my RV. Do you have anything? He said, no, but guess what? I'm building a facility. So I'll put you on the list. And he's like, absolutely. I'll take it. And he said, Catherine, I, I know you said I should try um, and ask, you know, because I gave him the numbers that in this study, like this is your competitors. This is a for sure thing but this is what I want you to set your prices at and see if you can attain them. And so I said $1,200 for this particular unit size. And he's like, I just couldn't do it. I froze. I asked for 900 and he was like, so He's like, like, I, I, I'm going to be able to rent this whole facility at 1200, aren't I? I'm like, yes. So I think that's the toughest thing with, with um, boat and RV is that there's not like, a bunch of REITs in the market, pushing the prices, pushing the prices. Yeah. So you're going to have to push those prices on your own and you can't be afraid to push them on your own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that I've, I've heard in a mastermind that I'm a part of, um, with a guy who specializes in boat, he's just boat and RV. He does no under roof storage I love it. Yeah. And he <laughs> Says you got to be careful if you're only going to do boat and RV storage you need a lot uh-huh. of land to be profitable. Yeah. You can't, like you're not going to be, you're probably not going to be able to build um, three acres to, on three acres. You're going to need no. probably 10 acres. Yeah. Really, you know, I to,
1: always tell people minimum of five, five
0: yeah. to 10. Yeah. Gotcha. Yep. Okay. Final question. Cause I, I kind of like, I like to hear other people's opinions because they, they vary. What do you consider <laughs> to be a trade area for, you know, an urban market versus a suburban market versus an exurban versus rural market, or does it well, va- or does it vary?
1: Well, I would say it, it's going to vary based on the competition. But pretending that you have average competition in uh, in an urban market, like with more than a hundred thousand people in your trade area then that might be as small as one to two miles. Um, If you're lucky enough to find a pocket that's undersupplied, maybe it's three miles. Um, And then for a suburban market, it's generally between three and five miles. Five miles in the, the, that would not be as common. So that population is probably between 30,000 and 100,000. And then for um, uh, a secondary suburban or rural market, the population is going to be less than 30,000 and it could be up to 10 miles. But you can't, it's, I think one thing that people really get fixated on is drawing everything in circles and concentric circles. Like here's your radius. This is what it is. No, your, your final trade area is, is going to be some kind of polygon. It's going to be like, the, you were cut off by this lake you were cut off by this interstate and you're cut off by this other town because the people from that town are not driving to your town yep. and so you really need to um look at what your actual trade area
0: is yeah we interviewed uh Fernando angelucci back on episode 76 and Fernando's
1: oh my man Fernando I love Fernando
0: yeah I know I love Fernando He's too. The best. yes um, <laughs> And he talked about, they were looking at a facility, I think even maybe a portfolio of facilities out near Asheville, North Carolina. And he said, we, you know, we had, it was kind of a rural market and we drew, uh, we drew our little, our circle and we're like, oh, this is great. He's like, until we realized that there was this huge pocket of population that they were counting that was like almost a two hour drive away because you had to go around the mountains. Uh So. (laughs) So is no like, one's go, driving around the mountain. No, you gotta, you can't just oh. draw a circle, draw a, a radius and say that population is ours. You got to sit there and do a little bit more, uh-huh. uh, com, you know right. thinking about, um, how are people, yeah. how are people moving, you know, through the area? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. yep. Well, Catherine D'Agostina, thank you so much for sharing <laughs> with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. You
0: have, you are offering, you offer a, a free consult the first time. You mentioned it earlier, but give us some details. A free on- preliminary
1: report. Okay. Yeah. So if you just go to my website, ninjas.com and click the button for a preliminary report, I'll do your first one free. And that's like a high level overview of the supply and potential unmet demand in the market and the consumer demographics in the market. And then um, I do charge a fee for future reports, but.
0: Okay. Great. Um, well, thanks for, you know, being a storage nerd with me today. Oh, you're welcome. You're
1: welcome. 2021.
0: All right. It was great speaking with you. Have a great day.
1: Yes. You too. Have a great day. Take care. Bye.
0: Okay. That was Catherine D'Agostino from selfstorageninjas.com. I highly recommend you go and check her out, take advantage of her free initial study that she'll do for you. So this is sort of a also in, sort of an unusual episode. We Our main focus is going to be on um, key lesson learned, but we did talk about her first self-storage facility, and um, she built it for $1.6 million using an SBA loan, and she brought 10% down. She brought, you know, so it means she really only had to come to the table with $160,000, and that's uh, one of the powers of an SBA loan, especially when you're building, is they will... Um, They're going to fund the, you know, uh, the construction and also a part of the operating costs uh, while it gets leased up. So um, there, there are obviously some caveats when it comes to using SBA. And I highly recommend that you go back and listen to our interview with Mo Kruger on episode 96 to get a little bit more about the caveats when it comes to dealing with an SBA loan. But I highly recommend you check that out. Okay, so key lesson learned for me here was one is as part of your initial kind of market analysis, when you're looking for a self-storage deal is to, you know, I often look at it as, is that first I just look at, is the market growing? But I, I think there's a, a, a step in front of that, which is how are you going to manage it? You know, what are you, how far away is this market from you? Uh, Is it something you can drive to? Are you planning on, you know, trying to run this remotely? Are you going to hire an individual to be on site for you, you know, 40 hours a week? Are you, is this going to be something where you're going to hire third-party management? The kinds of facilities that you're going to be targeting to be very different based on the answers to those questions. And then next, I thought it was very interesting, you know, talking to her about uh, RV and boat storage. Uh, you know, we, most self-storage, um, investors over the last several years have really kind of looked at, uh, that as a value add opportunity hey, Let's get rid of the boat and RV storage and we're going to stick under roof storage. And, you know, we're going to add value that way, add value that way. But now with the demand that is, uh, being generated with RV and boat storage, it actually might be something you want to look at. Keeping around, or at least digging deeper into the market and see what kinds of, um, see what the market is like. So, okay, once again, there's Catherine D'Agostino from selfstorage ninjas.com. I uh, highly recommend you go and check them out. I'm Neil Henderson. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com, and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.